Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an express delivery of piping hot stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and on your menu today, the rise of urban warfare and how to prepare for it. The latest currency insights from our Big Mac index, and a story of opium, sex, and gambling in the back streets of Old Shanghai. But we start, as is only right and proper, with our cover story. Three quarters of the way through the time allotted to work out an exit deal from the EU. Britain finally has a plan. Some might say better late than never, but the announcement of the Chequers deal has triggered a week of political chaos in Blighty. Two cabinet ministers and two Conservative Party vice chairmen have quit. The Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson said in his resignation letter that the Brexit dream is dying. Those abandoning ship are furious that Theresa May has dropped a hard separation from the EU for a softer deal. Preserving many legal and economic ties. On Thursday, during an official visit to London, President Donald Trump chimed in. He told a newspaper that Britain would probably not get a trade deal with the U.S. if Mrs. May's plan were to go ahead. That meant extra pressure on the Prime Minister. The task for Mrs. May and the EU is to ensure that the Brexit project does not descend into anarchy. But the Chequers plan for all the quarrels in the aftermath marks a decisive shift. She proposes that Britain remain, in effect, in the single market for goods and in a looser system of mutual recognition for services. In return, she promises not to undercut EU standards for the environment, social policies, or state aid, and she suggests that Britain stay in a customs union with the EU until a clever new tariff collection mechanism can be set up. Which may well mean forever. These are huge concessions, but not likely to satisfy EU leaders. They say she has still not made clear how Britain plans to avoid a hard border in Ireland, something they insist is settled before any deal can be signed. Britain is likely to be told that if it wants the benefits of the single market for goods, it must seek membership of the whole thing, which in turn means observing other rules, including free movement of labour. As a result, just about nobody is entirely happy with this deal. Hardline Brexiteers already feel betrayed. Remainers are hardly jubilant either. A soft Brexit is so obviously worse than what Britain has today as a member of the EU that it would underline more clearly than ever the folly of leaving. As the summer recess approaches, the government will have to either sell its deal or prepare to think beyond it. To break the parliamentary impasse, Mrs May might have to go back to the people, either with yet another election or even a second referendum, setting out a concrete plan for Brexit, rather than the vague, incompatible promises put before voters the last time round. One thing Britain can't change before or after Brexit is its geography, and as last week's NATO summit on security made clear, Europe is interdependent. I had a chance to witness that firsthand for the Economist asks when I joined an Anglo-German military excursion outside Berlin. 
Today's wars are no longer won on battlefields, but in cities. General Patrick Sanders, commander of the British Field Army, told me about the unique challenges of urban warfare. You never have enough troops in an urban environment and that troops get very easily swallowed up in the small rabbit warrens of, of streets in high-rise blocks. Staying in command, staying in control of groups of soldiers in that environment is really difficult. And you also learn that protecting your forces relies on having some equipment that's really important. Funnily enough, and counterintuitively, armoured vehicles, tanks in particular, being able to maintain your awareness of what's going on around you and also understand that the enemy will be using unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, uh, against you. Back from the battlefront, what about the home front of the workplace? The latest episode of Money Talks looked at the evolution of the office. The property company WeWork now has co-working offices in 250 cities worldwide. An expected new round of investment could take its value soaring to $35 billion. All that for some ergonomic chairs and cucumber-flavoured water? We asked our American business correspondent Vijay Vaithiswaran, is it worth it? If you were to value this as a, a property company, it's clearly overvalued. The company's rebuttal is that, in fact, that's the wrong way to look at it, that they see themselves as providing not merely raw square footage, but office as a service, space as a service. And in fact, uh, they have a new product that they're coming up with, which they call culture as a service, because they think they've figured out how to revive and rejuvenate Fortune 500 companies' cultures. It's not quite as crazy as it sounds. Already, they count about a quarter of the Fortune 500 as their clients. So clearly, they see some role in some of the things that WeWork offers. So it's possible that they're onto something. Of course, once we've all been replaced by robots, we won't need to worry about office space anymore. One job I'd have always thought safe from automation was that of chef. But a new burger joint in San Francisco suggests otherwise, as David Hamling told our science and technology podcast, Babbage. So it, it automates the entire process of burger production from actually grinding the meat itself to mixing the patty, cooking the patty, toasting the bun, slicing the bun, adding the toppings, putting the whole thing together and putting it into a bag. It's a robotic production line. It's churning out the burgers at this amazing rate, over 300 burgers an hour. You have a tablet ordering system, so you can say how you want your burger done, what toppings you want, what cheese you want. Everything is completely customizable and it gets it 100% perfect every time. And the creators say that they are producing a gourmet burger at fast food prices. What do you think? Is it just a gimmick or the end of the sous chef? And what about the tasting of food? Or might robots do that too? Write your review to us, radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. You might even make it into one of our shows, The Glory. Here at The Economist, we think you can learn a lot from a burger, as long as you keep a close eye on the BMI. Since The Economist last updated the Big Mac Index, or BMI, our light-hearted guide to currency valuation, burger prices have remained constant in 19 of 44 countries. But every currency has shifted in value. Our index uses a nugget of economic wisdom called purchasing power parity. Currencies should adjust until goods cost the same everywhere. If, once converted into dollars, Big Mac prices vary, 
one or other currency looks dear. So your happy meal might help you foresee the future. That may be true in Britain, where the pound has been particularly cheap since the Brexit vote in 2016. It now looks 23% undervalued. But there are limits on the power of burgernomics. One beef with the BMI is that burgers cannot easily be traded across borders. Neither can some inputs to production, such as land and labour. To take account of this, we also produce another version of the index, which adjusts Big Mac prices for GDP per person. And you can binge guilt-free on both at economist.com/bigmac. Now you've probably heard of WeChat, the messaging app owned by Chinese tech giant Tencent. If you live outside China, though, you probably haven't heard of Douyin, the cheeky young upstart taking on the Titan. At first blush, WeChat and Douyin appear to inhabit distinct worlds. The former is a super app in which more than one billion users not only chat but also order food, give to charity, and pay utility bills. Douyin is a bottomless, eclectic feed of looped 15-second videos, from a dexterous noodle maker in Chongqing to a shimmying peacock in a bamboo grove, all set to music. And yet, Douyin has WeChat rattled. In the first quarter of this year, TikTok, an international version of Douyin that launched in late 2017, became the world's most downloaded iPhone app, excluding games, a rare feat for a Chinese social app. It began as a war of words on WeChat itself. Where else? Sorry, Douyin fans. Ran an article from the short video app on its WeChat account, in which it accused the mobile messaging service of disabling links to Douyin's most popular videos. All hail Douyin, the drama queen! Retorted Tencent, WeChat's parent, which said it had acted because the content was inappropriate. But the battle has since moved from the apps to the courts. Tencent sued Douyin's parent company, ByteDance, for one yuan—that's fifteen cents—and demanded it apologize for its accusations on its own platforms and presumably without the snark. Tencent also alleged unfair competition. Within hours, Douyin countersued for ninety million yuan. Is WeChat right to be worried about the young pretender? Find out in this week's edition of the Economist. It's available on all good newsstands, and you can also subscribe by visiting economist.com/radiooffer for 12 issues for 12 dollars or 12 pounds. And finally, let's leave the app wars behind and venture into China's not too distant but completely unrecognisable past. A review in our books and arts section paid a visit to old Shanghai. Even during its heyday in the 1930s, the Shanghai of legend seemed to live under a premonition of death. After all, the treaty port was born of a monstrous crime. It was the prize foreigners claimed after the Qing Dynasty resisted Britain's efforts to force opium down Chinese lungs. By the early 1930s, international Shanghai was, as Paul French puts it, a festering goiter of badness. The flotsam of the West drifted into its port and partied as if there were no tomorrow. It was the fifth biggest city on earth, a babel of tongues, and a sanctuary for white Russian beauties who preferred prostitution to Bolshevism, Englishmen who had failed at home, American grifters, and Jews from Central European shtetls fleeing anti-Semitism. Its religion was money. 
and the getting of it. In City of Devils, Paul French narrates the rise and fall of two men who shaped Shanghai's bad old days. Dapper Joe Farron was born Josef Pollack in a Vienna ghetto and came to Shanghai as an exhibition dancer, gliding on the city's sprung floors with Nelly, his wife, whom men could not take their eyes off. Lucky Jack Riley had also changed his name and identity more than once. Brought up in a Tulsa orphanage, he was a prison fugitive and American seaman before he came to Shanghai, where he started as a bouncer and rose to become the undisputed slots king, controlling every one-armed bandit in the city. They saw their chance at the big time when Japanese forces attacked the city in 1937. The international concessions became islands in a sea of panic. In these badlands, Farron and Riley joined forces to found the biggest and ritziest nightclub and casino that Shanghai had ever seen. While all around were destitution, squalor, cruelty, and violence. The dragon is the city's symbol, Mr. French reminds us, but the rat is Shanghai's future. He grips his reader to the end. And that's the end of this week's tasting menu. As ever, you can find all our stories and more at Economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And if you like what we do or have suggestions for how we could do it even better, do leave us all a review. We love to hear from you. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is the Economist. Hold up. 